0: Hi, everyone. This is Peter Levin, and you're listening to another episode of In Good Hands, a show about the companies and founders solving our climate crisis. Today, I interview Tara Ritter, Senior Program Associate from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Now, here's some context. For the last several decades, we've been chopping down acres and acres of forests and have been unloading chemicals upon chemicals across all of our farmland. And because of both of these things, we're experiencing what some experts have called a soil crisis. And here's why poor soil health is a problem. Soil is actually one of the world's top carbon sinks, And if current rates of degradation continue, some experts suggest that all of the world's top soil could be gone within 60 years. In the episode, Tara and I discuss what soil degradation is and what contributes to this issue. Opinions around animal agriculture and to what extent they're actually true and how we can actually fight climate change with the help of farmers around the world. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation with Tara Ritter, Senior Program Associate in the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy. Tara, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: So
2: Tara, let's start with the basics. What is IETP? What does it stand for? And what are you guys working on?
1: IATP is the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We are um, based in Minneapolis. So we are founded here. We have a D.C. office as well, but the vast majority of the staff are here in Minneapolis. And this organization started in 1986, I think, and that was in the heart of the farm crisis of the 80s. And there were a lot of other ag advocacy groups that started at that time, so like FarmAid, the National Family Farm Coalition a lot of other ag organizations that we still work with really closely today. But the farm crisis of the 80s, there were thousands of family farms that were lost um, as a result of poor farm policy, low prices, and then consolidation of farms. And IATP started in order to advocate, be an advocacy organization to hopefully support a new system, one that supports family farms in maintaining viable operations. And for us, that both means farmers that make a living, but also in a way that stewards the environment.
2: Tara, that sounds super fascinating. I think uh, what I'd love to do, especially within the context of this conversation, is zoom in on how the work being done pertains to the kind of climate crisis at large and all the different ways you guys are solving it and contributing. And one of the key areas that really interests me most is the state of agriculture, and there's this infamous piece, both in academic reports, but just in the climate community at large around this notion of only 60 years of farming being left if soil degradation continues. What does that mean exactly? Can you just distill down to what extent that notion is true? What are the causes of it? And if it really is this big thing, you know, what can we do to solve it?
1: Yeah, it's a, a big question with a lot of parts. Yeah, I, I can't really speak to that 60 years figure. You know, things like that always kind of freak me out. And, and I don't think there's any way for us to totally know. But I think what's really important about that is that it points to a huge problem. You know, we, we have a giant problem that we've been depleting the soil rapidly and I need to focus on building soil health, especially in the face of climate change. I hope that we won't see a total business as usual scenario over the next sixty years. And you know, if that's the case, that some stuff changes, we have a chance to make this problem a lot more manageable and hopefully reverse it. How we farm, what we farm, all those things impact soil health, and hopefully can slow that soil degradation in in a way that it's not such a giant crisis. But that's that said, again, this is pointing to a really big problem.
2: Can we dive into the first piece of it? What are the actual causes? Of soil degradation?
1: It can mean a lot of things. When I think about soil degradation, I'm thinking of um, erosion, loss of nutrients in the soil. I guess those are the big ones that come to mind. But the dominant way that we do ag today leads to that. So things like applying a lot of fertilizer and chemicals, Leaving soil bare also leads to erosion. So, you know, I'm in Minnesota. If you drive through the Midwest in the winter, you see a ton of uncovered soil. Harvest has happened, and then the land is left bare, and there's nothing planted in the field. And when soil is exposed like that, it's really susceptible to erosion and topsoil loss. And then, two, when soil carbon is low, big rain events can wash away a lot of topsoil. It's just less cohesive and more susceptible to degradation.
2: And... To what extent is this problem related to the climate crisis at large?
1: Soil is one of Earth's largest carbon sinks. You know, oceans are one too, forests are one, but soils hold a ton of carbon. And when we farm in a certain way or manage land in a certain way, you know, even aside from agriculture, that carbon that's stored in the soil can get released. On the flip side of that, we can manage land in a way that Sucks that carbon back down. And so that has huge implications for climate change. It can both be framed as a problem, like, oh no, we've released so much carbon. But it can also, you know, I like to sort of look at the positive side because otherwise, like, how do you maintain hope when you work on this? There's also massive potential um, for us to start moving towards a system that's incentivizing and encouraging the type of ag that can, you know, build back up our soils and maximize them as a carbon sink.
2: I'd love to zoom in a little bit further into the problem area. And one of the more popular, you know, corners of opinion is that animal ar- agriculture is inherently bad for the plant. But I think in many ways, it's, it's a lot more nuanced than that. So I'd love to hear your opinion or your thoughts. What about animal agriculture is inherently bad for the planet?
1: It's tough, because like you said, it's it's really nuanced, and I'll agree with you that animal ag done a certain way is bad for the planet. So IATP works pretty hard at stopping factory farms or at least getting them regulated, and the term we use for that is a CAFO, which stands for a Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. And there are a lot of arguments against CAFOs from a climate change perspective, which is what we're talking about here, but also from a water quality perspective an air quality perspective, and then really importantly, too, from an environmental justice perspective. And as far as the climate impacts, that is largely coming directly from the way manure is managed. You know, super interesting subject for a lot of people I know. (laughs) But the the way CAFOs handle their manure is it's generally liquefied and stored in manure lagoons, which are essentially, you know, giant ponds of liquefied manure. And when it's handled that way, it emits a lot of methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas, more potent than CO2. So one way we're working on that is by advocating for CAFO regulation. California right now is the only state that directly regulates methane from animal ag.
2: When you say the state of California regulates, do, how is that, what, what does that mean exactly in real
1: life? Yeah, they have a bill or, you know, several bills that uh, require um, the state to engage in methane reduction. So they have goals by, you know, certain years and certain benchmarks that they will reduce methane by a certain amount and in identifying big sources of methane within the state animal ag is one of those and so it is then um, subject to reducing their emissions to meet meet california's goals over over a certain amount of years
2: and manure management happens to be kind of one of the core culprits within the animal ag problem and opportunity area specifically
1: yeah yeah absolutely
2: how should farmers be managing their manure?
1: And, <laughs> such a tough question. Because um, I mean, first of all, I'm always hesitant to, uh, you know, say what farmers should do, uh-huh. because um, I'm not one. And there's a, a lot of struggle right now being a farmer with the way the policy system is set up I and mean, the way the farm economy is going right now. But I think ideally, it's bigger than how you handle manure at a CAFO, um, because ideally, we wouldn't be farming in that way. We would be farming in a way that's raising more pasture-based animals, and that is an entire different system, and that's an entire different conversation than handling manure at KFOs in a certain way. And one thing that I think is, is really important, and it circles back to your uh, original question of, you know, is animal ag inherently bad? is that no, I don't think so. Raising animals can actually be super good for the planet if done well. You know, the dominant conversation is, is to demonize animal agriculture. And we also live in kind of a scary political context right now where there's a lot of crises bearing down upon us and people are responding in ways that can tend to be pretty polarized. But the nuances of this are really important to me. And one example is management intensive rotational grazing, which uh, keeps animals out on pasture. And then also in a way that um, moves them around really frequently. So there's a lot of fencing and it gets moved and the herd is positioned in different parts of the pasture every day, really. And the movement of these animals, so the management intensive part is to prevent overgrazing. And that way of raising animals, of keeping them out on pastures is really good for the for the soil. And that's really because we're, we're trying to get ag back to the way nature intended it. And the way it did is that animals are meant to be on the land and the um, compaction of their hooves is good for the soil. If we're talking about manure management, when they're moving around the pasture and just, you know, depositing on the ground, that, that is fertilizer and that's really healthy for the soil too. So when animals are out on pasture and managed in a way that's preventing overgrazing, that is actually building that soil carbon um, and reducing erosion and really building up the potential for soil to be the carbon sink that we were talking about earlier.
2: This is one of the more important narratives that I want to make sure we broadcast widely because like you said, there's a growing sentiment where people are having this binary decision, right? If you eat meat, You're doing something that's inherently bad for the planet. But um, it it is nuanced because a key part of that narrative should also include exactly how that food is being sourced, is being raised, is being transported to plate. So I'd like to kind of transition to what some people call clean farming, what many other people are calling regenerative agriculture can you just tell for the layperson, what is regenerative agriculture? And can you give a couple core examples of how uh, those tactics are implemented in farms today?
1: Regenerative agriculture is being talked about a lot. And for good reason. There's no set definition for it. You know, like, for instance, organic agriculture has a definition by USDA. There's certain practices. Regenerative agriculture does not have that. So I think you could talk to 100 different people and get kind of 100 different answers. But to me, it essentially refers to bringing our land back to its natural state. So regenerating it to how it was originally. I guess, so to speak. And rather than degenerating, when we were talking about soil degradation, regenerating it, bringing back that diversity and those soil nutrients and the soil microbes and the nutrient cycling in a way that it's really healthy and it's building up a system that is back in balance with nature and sustainable for the long term. Wow.
2: Can you uh, elaborate a little bit on what are kind of the uh, most common tactics implemented and how those look? on farms today?
1: There's so many different types of farming. So there's animal agriculture, but when I'm driving through Minnesota, a lot of what I see is is corn and soy, big commodity crop farms. And so there's ways to be farming regeneratively too in the, in kind of the crop space. So we talked a little bit just now about integrating animals back onto the landscape and that's um, hugely important from a regenerative agriculture perspective. But one area that I am really interested in and is an area of my expertise personally is soil health. And one framework for that is the NRCS, the Natural Resources Conservation Service. It's a part of USDA and they administer a lot of farm programs. And they have a set of what's called soil health building blocks. And to me, those building blocks really get to what regenerative agriculture would um, hopefully build up and get at. And some of the big pieces there are to disturb the soil less, diversify what you're growing, keep roots in the ground year round and keep your soil covered. And, you know, this all gets a little nerdy, but it, it comes back to soil microbes. So in a healthy soil, there's a really active web of life. These microbes, they decompose organic matter. They cycle nutrients. They fertilize the soil. And so we're really wanting to engage in farming practices that are supporting that life. And one of the first building blocks that I mentioned is disturb the soil less. And that generally refers to tillage. So when you till up the soil, which is an extremely common practice today, that's disrupting those soil microbes. And same with overapplication of inputs and chemicals can also happen with animal ag.
2: What is tillage? Yeah, what is tillage exactly?
1: It's kind of turning over the top layer of the soil. So it happens a lot before, before you plant. It, it's just kind of like digging up that top layer of soil. You know, it's kind of like meant to sort of aerate it and, and prep it for growth. But we're learning more and more through soil science, that it's kind of an unnecessary step. And really what it's doing is, is breaking up that life in the soil and honestly releasing whatever carbon is stored in that you know top several inches of the soil.
2: Interesting. As in, so farmers who operate the farms are using either some type of machinery or, or labor to actually dig down and then flip the soil.
1: Yeah. yeah. What? More wow. Less. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, did I know that? And okay, so I didn't mean to cut you off. What What were some of the other things that you're you're exploring? Excited about?
1: I guess an, probably one of the biggest things is diversity. If we're if we're looking at these natural systems that are kind of the way nature intended, you're not seeing just one thing growing. You're seeing a lot of it. Like on a prairie, there's just tons of different species and so diversity is, is critical to regenerative agriculture. And this is, you know, in part when different plants are grown, they feed the soil with uh, different nutrients in different ways. And that diversity of nutrients is, is feeding those soil microbes and it's cycling nutrients in a way that helps plants grow. And in a way where if those nutrients are kind of building up in the soil, it reduces the need for synthetic inputs too, which can help reduce farm costs if we get to that point. And then I'm moving on. I'm kind of going through these building points. No, I'd it. identify them. But the next one is, is keeping a living root growing throughout the year. So having those roots in the soil, you know, both stabilizes things, prevents erosion, but the roots are also, again, feeding those soil microbes. One one way, you know, that I get especially hyped up about keeping a living root in the ground is cover crops. And they're, you know, especially great at boosting soil health. So that's you know, keeping the ground covered Some, you know, common cover crops are like cereal rye, clover, alfalfa, radish. You know, there's a huge variety of cover crops that you can plant. And then they also get at that other principle of keeping the soil covered. So making sure it's not bare, which is conserving moisture, um, keeping soil temperature stable and suppressing weed growth even. So anyway, regenerative ag can include a ton more than that. (laughs) Like I said, you know, people could identify these practices in a whole ton of different ways. But yeah, that's some of the stuff I would say.
2: And just to clarify on the cover crops, so is the intention there, a farmer, you know, they, they grow these cover crops that then protect the uh, crops, you know, underneath it from nature, right? From, you know, intense rainfall or what, what is the kind of what is the value add of these cover crops?
1: So they're, uh, again, kind of stabilizing the soil. So, you know, preventing erosion. And then also when that soil is covered and has roots in the ground, it is kind of building up a structure that retains moisture better. So farms can better withstand drought and flood, which we're facing climate change right now. So that's huge. Another thing too, is they actually suppress weed growth and pests too. So they really, you know, over the long term, can help a farmer need fewer insecticides, herbicides, things like that. And then again, they're cycling nutrients back into the soil so some of them for instance fix nitrogen and so then that nitrogen is in the soil naturally in a way that can be feeding whatever the primary crop that they're growing is which again in the midwest is frequently corn Uh,
2: so i i wanted to to ask one more thing about regenerative ag because uh, there's a lot of exciting media coverage now that suggests the promise of farms transitioning to kind of some of these different tactics and techniques you listed, what it means for the soil health, and then if the soil is healthy, what it means with respect to our ability to, you know, capture carbon from the air and store it productively. But I, I'd love to also hear the devil's advocate is if there is one. You know, is there anything about these techniques that are overhyped or, maybe you fear are, are being kind of overpromised in some way?
1: I think for me, it circles back to a little bit when we were touching on this, when we were talking about animal ag, in terms of climate change is bearing down upon us. It's really doom and gloom and people are hungry for solutions and for big solutions. And I just think it's really important for people to remember that there's no silver bullet, you know, Regenerative agriculture is hugely beneficial and I will advocate for it till the day I die, but it's is—it's not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve climate change on its own. And any rhetoric that we can just pull all of the carbon we're emitting out of the atmosphere through farming, I think that probably is overhyped. But I also don't think that we should discount regenerative agriculture because there's so many benefits beyond carbon sequestration. It's helping with water quality is a huge one. And then also you know, at IETP, and, and something that I frequently think is missing from this conversation is the farmer and the farm as a business. And we're passionate about keeping farmers on the land and keeping farming a profession that's viable and that can be viable in a way that also stewards the environment. I've said this a few times, but it's a really tough time to be farming right now. I mentioned when ITP was started, there was a giant farm crisis in the 80s. And right now we are facing the worst farm economy since then. There's thousands of farms that have gone out of business over the past several years. And, and we're hearing more and more about people just really struggling to hang on to their land. Is when that, we're talking
2: about, why is that? Yeah,
1: I, we are working with a really messed up policy framework. Farmers are encouraged to get big or get out, you know, Crop insurance and the farm bill is structured in a way that's incentivizing growing certain crops. There's not a lot of support for implementing conservation practices like the ones I've been talking about. So farmers are kind of squeezed in terms of the decisions that they can make. And then two, prices are so low. Dairy, especially the, the crops or the product um, that's being produced is frequently being sold below the cost of production. And I, I think something like half of farms had negative farm income last year. So I just think for me, it's really critical for us to be thinking about the farmer and that regenerative agriculture has the potential, especially if we can work within this policy framework to make some, (laughs) I was gonna say tweaks, but we need more than tweaks. There is a huge potential for this to be good for the farm as a business. That um, with healthier soil, again, that farm's not going to be decimated by drought and flood in the same way. That if that soil gets healthier, they're not going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides, chemical inputs. That potentially regenerative agriculture is a way that that farms could stay viable, and that that's really important to me is to be supporting farmers and building up a framework that they can, you know, maintain their businesses and maintain their livelihoods.
2: I'd heard that kind of the state of the farmer was was tough. I did not know it was that dire. I mean, half of farms had negative income, I and mean, that's that's really sad. I, I have a a couple key questions to build off of this. The first of which, can you walk through how IETP actually integrates into this workflow? What are you doing to uh, represent the needs? Of the farmer and how is that then represented in Congress in the form of lobbying?
1: First, I'll say that I view us as a puzzle piece in a larger movement, and we work in a lot of coalitions. So, as I'll outline some of the ways we're working on this, I just want to note that there's hundreds of farm organizations across the country that we're working on this together, and that alignment is super important in getting any wins. But I think. One of the biggest culprits that we see is overproduction. Part of the reason that prices are so low is we're just simply producing too much. And so we are working a bit on thinking through how supply management could potentially stabilize prices. I work, again, a lot on federal policy. So thinking through how the farm bill could funnel more money into conservation programs. That could potentially um, support farmers in uh, farming regeneratively. I have colleagues, and I this is not my area of expertise, that are trade-focused. So working on the new NAFTA is the big one in the news right now, and thinking through how that can sort of protect farms and make sure that, that these trade agreements are beneficial for the farmer and not just big corporations. And then, too, we have an on-the-ground program, a farm-to-school program, where those Colleagues of mine are working on kind of markets for farmers, whether it's through early care facilities, schools, hospitals, and figuring out how that kind of direct marketing can open up different ways for a farmer to sell their product. So again, we're kind of a funny organization in that we do so much, which I think can be framed in several ways, like either we're stretching ourselves too thin, but I like to think about it more as connecting the dots and seeing a big picture. And then within that, being able to plug into these coalitions and work effectively with the other organizations who are also sharing common goals with us.
2: So one of our early guests, Square Roots, they're an indoor farming company based in Brooklyn. They're starting to grow these indoor farms that can yield crop all year, aren't bound by the limits of nature. They're also solving one of the core problem areas in agriculture, which is the average age. Of the farmer, the average age is is really old, and it's hard to get new people to enter the industry. And what their particular uh, product suite enables people that are much younger with very little uh, previous experience on a farm—you know, their family wasn't doing it—to get up and running in weeks, because the technology that's retrofit inside of these shipping container farms, allow for a host of, you know, I'll put quote for quote, plug and play options where you can select, hey, I know my community wants this type of crop, click, and then it's going to fabricate or create an environment that is, you know, kind of pixel perfect or personalized and optimized for that particular crop production. It's really
1: interesting area that is fascinating. And it you know brings up a really critical point about young farmers. And I'll give a shout out to an organization that we work with, the National Young Farmers Coalition, who they're doing a lot of work trying to figure out how to make farming something that's easier for young people to get into. And in this conversation, young people is defined as under 40. So, you know, like you said, the, the farm population is really aging. And I heard I'm going to say this stat, but I would want to double check it that something like 90% of farmers don't have a succession plan. So it's kind of, you know, hope that it works out. And so there's, yeah, going to be a ton of land that needs to transition. And yet, young farmers in this, you know, big survey that NYFC did are citing access to land as the number one challenge in getting into farming. And then the second one that they're citing, their second biggest challenge is student loan debt, which is really holding them back from investing, right? Like that they're burdened by student loan debt in a way that it is um, hindering them being able to start a farm operation. So it, it's kind of funny because it doesn't seem, land access certainly seems like the big one, but then student loans, healthcare, these are the other big issues that are really making it tough for young farmers to get into this. Wow.
2: Man, it just goes to show anytime someone makes a, what appears to be a broad stroke statement right about a particular stat it goes to show how many inputs are actually involved in generating the reality that we see you know it's really not we talk about the average age there's so many reasons why and there's all of those areas that you mentioned in you know, the cost of education healthcare all come with their own other cascade of challenges and obstacles so just a it's really, it's really interesting to it's just a really interesting thing to think about. I, yeah. Do you know, are there? Are you familiar with any companies or startups that are working on creating reliable tools, such that we can measure in real time with, you know, near perfect accuracy? You know, what is the state of that?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of tools out there, and a lot of them that feel like they're pretty accurate. One that actually is pretty broadly used is called Comet Farm. It was created by Colorado State University. And, you know, so these measurement tools do exist. I think what's tricky is that science is continuing to emerge about how soil carbon is built up, that it's different in different depths of the soil, that, you know, different root are sequestering it differently. And so I think we're still learning so much about how soil organic carbon even builds up. And then two, to take in those other issues of, of permanence, for instance, you know, that, that's just a huge one. Like we don't have permanent easements. Like there's, there's no way to guarantee that, you know, these practices are going to continue forever on a field, and that you know goes beyond measurement tools, but you know is an, is another consideration. So yeah, people are are definitely working on creating these tools. i just I'm skeptical of the perfect accuracy piece that you just uh, mentioned. No, it's
2: it's a great point. And I think the takeaway here is, even though um, there are still many question marks around permanence, around you know, some of the nuts and bolts, we know high level that these tactics that we've listed throughout the interview are still sure bets. Right. They still improve soil health. They are carbon sinks Um, to what extent and the specifics around, you know, how much they store and all these things are still uh, to be determined. But we still should be um, advocating and encouraging uh, legislation at large and industry to adopt these tactics. So I guess what I what I'd love to do before parting ways is is roll the red carpet. Tara, is there any final call to actions, announcements, anything you want to leave with our listeners? The the floor is yours. The
1: floor is mine. I think, (laughs) you know, and again, this is I'm saying this because I feel like it's frequently a gap in the conversation and it's funny because for me, it's the most critical piece. And that is thinking of the farmer. And, you know, that it's it's really easy for advocates and people who identify as environmentalists and people who really care about climate change, you know, to have opinions on how farming is done. And I think that's because there's, you know, there's a lot of science out there and evidence that, you know, there are systems that can really clean up our water and sequester carbon, you know, but especially in this polarized political environment that we live in you know we we got to be thinking about the farmers uh, because they're the ones that own this land or are renting it in many cases who are stewarding this land and who are taking the risks and making the decisions and really you know putting it all on the line like you know is this going to put food on the table? And that, you know, in this conversation, we really need to be cognizant too about what is good for the farmer and advocating for systems that, you know, do both. Because I think at the end of the day, sustainability does both. It supports people and it supports the environment. And so I would just encourage all of us, you know, climate change nerds and uh, environmentalists and, you know, however we want to identify ourselves to, you know, keep the farmers in our thoughts, Uh, thank them, support them, and, you know, really try to, Remember that there are allies in this.
2: Well, Tara, this was such a pleasure. I appreciate your time and thank you so much for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great.
2: If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing and writing us a review. Also, if you have any recommendations about a founder or a company that you'd like to see on the show, let us know. Message us on social at in Good Hands. Also,
0: Special shout out to Dan Mahoney, who produced this week's episode, and Eddie Knuckles, our music director. I'm your host, Peter Levin. You can find me on Instagram
2: or Twitter at Peter Levin. And that's it. Looking forward to bringing you another new episode next Tuesday.